Wicking Vicar is known for making high-quality, comfortable clerical shirts that make great gifts for pastors. But did you know Wicking Vicar also has great gifts for your little Lutherans? Just in time for Advent, you can get a wooden Advent wreath playset to help kids learn about Christ's incarnation. You can also pick up a wooden baptismal candle playset to celebrate your kid's baptismal birthday and teach them to sing, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. Visit wickingvicar.com to see these gifts. That's W-I-C-K-I-N-G-V-I-C-A-R dot com. Listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Aaron. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. We are celebrating Reformation Day today, ladies. So happy Reformation a few days early because that's happening Monday after this podcast drops. So we're going to jump in on a little bit of history, but this is history, Reformation history, that is not my particular flavor of Reformation history. I like all things like German and, I don't know, renaissance German kind of stuff. But we're going across to England, and this is history that I don't know a whole lot about. And I believe, Rachel, you were the one that actually suggested that we I do this. I am so excited. <laughs> I still can't believe you actually took me up on this idea, and I can't wait to see what you came up with, because this yes, is just so, awesome. And I know and there are is- some other women out here who will just be <laughs> geeking out over this, too. Yeah, probably. It's basically Tudor English history soap opera day. That is kind of what I felt like when I was researching this. It reads like one big soap opera drama. So today is the story of Catherine Parr, who is the last of the six wives of King Henry VIII. So I know some of you are now geeking out because... You guys love King Henry VIII. Love I don't is know a, much. No, maybe not the right word. No, sorry. <laughs> Are completely morbidly fascinated by so that we can't look away. Yeah. Yes. Like a train yes. wreck. T- train wreck. Aaron is humming a soap opera theme song. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out what you were doing. So what's she doing? <laughs> if it's not so the theme song to Jeopardy, I probably don't know it. <laughs> Okay, so Catherine Parr is the last wife, which means it's the one that was not killed or died while she was actually queen, which is something actually significant. If you don't know anything about the wives of King Henry VIII, how does it go? Uh, Divorced, divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Yeah, there you go. So she is the one that survived, which is a particular thing that we're going to talk about in a little bit. So did you also know that she was basically a Lutheran? I did not know this. Hmm. I did. Hence the tie-in, I'm sure. (laughs) Hence the tie-in. So this is kind of a English Reformation podcast, sort of, but I'm not really going to talk a lot about the English Reformation. That is a whole nother set of historical things that I didn't research. This is about Catherine Parr's story. Some of the English Reformation does play into this. I believe we're going to, we're, we're planning on an English Reformation history series on the coffee hour with Dr. Cameron McKenzie for this fall still. I, I'm not sure if it will actually happen. We haven't actually scheduled it yet, but that is the plan for us. Mm. So if you want to know more about English Reformation history, 
check that out in a little bit. Dr. McKenzie is awesome. You won't want to miss like that. Or just email Dr. McKenzie and ask him about the English Reformation and you'll probably get lots of really cool information because he's amazing and knows everything. So... So Catherine Parr would eventually become Queen of England and Ireland. They were married in 1543. So she was a queen from July 12, 1543 until Henry's death on January 28, 1547. And she was the final queen consort of the House of Tudor and outlived Henry by 20 months. Those are important things if you know anything about mm. the House of Tudor. That was an interesting dynasty in the British monarchy. And if you don't, you can definitely Google it. There's plenty on Wikipedia and elsewhere. So I know a lot of you ladies are into British history and the British monarchy, etc. Some of you uh, helped me research this podcast because I have no resources on it and several of you did. So Thanks for all of you who actually like gave me stuff to look at for this podcast. If I miss something, which I, I probably will, feel free to post extra stuff in the comments for this episode and fill in some of the gaps because I'm sure there will be something. Also, many thanks to Pastor Don Matsat. He shared his book with me, Catherine Parr, Opportunist Queen Reformer, A Theological Perspective. So he wrote a book. He's a Lutheran pastor. He wrote a book about Catherine Parr, kind of a biography of her, a theological history of her. He also translated The Lamentation of a Sinner by Queen Catherine Parr, which we will get to in a little bit. Also, really great little book. That one you can get on Amazon for like four bucks. Totally worth it. There's a lot of other reading materials out there as well because she's British royalty. So there's if you go to her Wikipedia page, there is a lengthy list of other resources you can read. So if you're into the history of Catherine Parr or of this historical timeline, there's lots of other stuff. There's also a lot of really interesting connections between what was happening in England during the Reformation and what was happening in Germany. There are kind of simultaneous things happening in the church bodies in both of these places. I'm going to reference a little bit of that, but there's a lot more than what I'm going to be able to put into this podcast that I could even like reference. So there's a lot more history than I'm going to be telling you in the next like 45 minutes. Before I get into Catherine's story, I do have to give you the history of where she fits into King Henry VIII's wife lineup. So... <laughs> <laughs> so if you, yes, the roster of wives. So if you know this history, bear with me. If not, here's the soap opera. So King Henry VIII was actually second in line to the throne. But uh, after his father, King Henry VII died, his brother Arthur also died, leaving Henry VIII to take the throne. I believe so Arthur, Arthur was, actually died before his okay. father. I'm pretty oh, sure. I don't know. Let me Google this. I don't know. <laughs> the important part of that is that Arthur was originally betrothed to Catherine of Aragon, who is the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Yes, the same Ferdinand and Isabella who financed Christopher Columbus's journey to the Americas. So Arthur and Catherine were married in 1501, but he died five months later. So after yes, Henry the Henry VII died after his son, Arthur. Okay. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually know that. So after King Henry VIII's coronation... He announced that he would marry Catherine, and so they married in 1509. So Catherine, Catherine was going to be queen regardless of who she married at and that point. And they had to get a special dispensation to get married. This is important oh, because of course you're not supposed, according to the Bible, you're not supposed to marry your brothers. No, 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 no. Bible's fine with it. Laws of consanguinity from the early medieval era meant that you uh, said that you could not marry your brother's wife. Unless uh -huh. they had never consummated the marriage, which Catherine said they hadn't. So, huh. Yeah. Very interesting. Yes. So 
Catherine had many miscarriages and then a son, Henry, who died early in infancy, and then Mary, who would become Bloody Mary. But Henry, her husband, Henry VIII, was not happy that Catherine wasn't producing a male heir. So he started having all these affairs and fell in love or lust with Anne Boleyn. But Anne refused to be his mistress. She would only be with him as his legitimate wife. She wasn't going to be his mistress. So Henry wanted to annul his marriage to Catherine in order to marry Anne, but the Catholic Church wouldn't let him. And even Martin Luther said that he shouldn't do it. So after the Pope refused to grant him an annulment, Henry declared himself head of the Church of England so he could give himself authority to annul his 24-year marriage to Catherine of Aragon. So that happened. Yeah, and he and it's, Anne married in- <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. So he goes back to the Pope. He's like, so um, I'm really feeling guilty about having married my brother's wife. Uh, Can I get an annulment? And the Pope's like, dude, 24 years. How many pregnancies and babies you get? No, annulments are not for this scenario. Yep. Mm. Yep. So now we have the Church of England. So Henry and Anne married in secret. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, declared Henry and Catherine's marriage void and Henry and Anne's as valid. So then the Pope excommunicated Henry and Thomas Cranmer and the break with Rome was solidified. And then Henry and Anne were publicly officially married in 1533. And question. Yes. Why on earth did Martin Luther weigh in on this conversation? Because it was during the Reformation and he had opinions about things. Martin Luther doesn't have an unpublished thought. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, Okay. He's like the Elon Musk of his day. About it and decided he was gonna. Okay, gotcha. Carry on. Luther on Twitter. None of my business, but I'm like, why did (laughs) they consult with Luther? It's Luther. Yeah. Yeah. No, he just he He, had an opinion about it because it was happening during the time that stuff was. Drama. Mm-hmm. It was drama. Mm-hmm. Side note, just a couple years later in 1536, Henry VIII would allow the English Bible in England, which at this time period was a big deal to have a Bible in the local vernacular, since we know that it was a big deal with the Reformation in general. And that same year, 1536, William Tyndale would be martyred in Belgium. So there was a lot of stuff happening in regards mm-hmm. to just Reformation theology drama also at this point. Anne also wasn't able to bear Henry any male heirs. Seems to be a theme going on here. With Elizabeth as her only child, and Elizabeth would later ascend the throne and usher in the Elizabethan era in England, ending the Tudor dynasty, which that's a whole nother part of history. So Henry didn't <laughs> decided he didn't want to be married to Anne anymore. So he became interested in Jane Seymour, who is Queen Catherine's maid of honor and also in service to Queen Anne. Then Anne was accused of infidelity and was ultimately arrested and tried for treason and beheaded. Yeah, because so if you what- are a queen consort, infidelity is never just infidelity. It's also treason to the crown. Yep. Yep. So uh, that was wife number two. So then Henry married Jane Seymour shortly after. Is this Jane- the Dr. Quinn medicine woman, Jane Seymour? I know, yes. no, but I got so confused when I was young. Yeah. I was like, how is she starring in a... She's she oh, looks flawless I for know. a thousand years old and dead and <laughs> dead. <laughs> Jane did bear a son, Edward, who would succeed Henry to the throne. Sadly, Jane died in childbirth and was the only wife to receive a queen's funeral hmm. and very likely could have been like Henry's actual true love. But there's that, too. So now 
Thomas Cromwell, not Thomas Cranmer, Thomas Cromwell, who was the king's chief advisor, encouraged Henry to marry Anne of Cleves, who was German, so they could maybe align with the German Lutheran Reformation because Cromwell was sympathetic to the German Lutheran Reformation. Henry agreed to marry her without seeing her first. But when he saw her for the first time, he was not pleased. So even though they married, it was never consummated and declared null and void. And poor Thomas Cromwell was accused of treason and beheaded for his bad marriage advice to the king. Womp womp. So Anne stayed in England and was treated well after that marriage and was. An- that, friends, is why you don't Photoshop your eHarmony profile picture. <laughs> yeah, the image that he saw of her in print uh, it's a was good, apparently. It's a good look, the, the portrait. Yeah, it was um, apparently Photoshopped in whatever 1500s Photoshopping things that they did. That Yeah. He also said she the photo not- had not conveyed her actual like body odor. I think I remember that from something. Yeah. Which is another hazard with not meeting someone in person before you agree to marry them. Fair warning to all you online dating. I I kid. I met my husband online. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) he does not smell and he looks like his picture. So, (laughs) so that was what four were on number five. Uh So Henry had already started an affair with Catherine Howard, Uh who was only 17. One can almost Maybe that had something to do with his dissatisfaction. Maybe. Maybe. So after his marriage to Anne was annulled, he married Catherine Howard, but she didn't love being married to an old obese king. She had a lot of other relationships on the side. So she was, of course, caught, accused of treason and also beheaded. So now we get to Catherine Parr. (sighs) To the beginning of her story. Okay. (laughs) Catherine was born in 1512, probably in August, although that's not documented. And this is just five years before Luther nails his 95 Theses to Wittenberg. So she really grew up in the heyday of the Reformation. This was kind of her her formative years were while all the Reformation stuff was happening in Germany, too. She was the oldest child of Sir Thomas Parr, who was Lord of the Manor of Kendall in Westmoreland, which is now Cumbria, and Maud Green, who was the daughter and co-heiress of Sir Thomas Green, Lord of Greens, Norton, Northamptonshire, and Joan Foggy. Catherine's dad, Sir Thomas, was a descendant of King Edward III, and the family had pretty high standing in society with a lot of knights in the family. And Catherine's younger brother, William, would eventually be the first Marquess of Northampton, and her younger sister, Anne, was later Countess of Pembroke. And I can't keep all these titles straight, but I know all those things mean a lot of things, and I really only know what I know from Downton Abbey. Pembroke but- is a type of dog. <laughs> Well, Scorgie. Mm-hmm. But all this to say, her family was already connected to the royal family. They were already in high society. So Sir Thomas was also a close companion to King Henry VIII, and he had positions as sheriff of Northamptonshire, master of the wards, and comptroller to the king. So Catherine's family and the king's family were already, they already knew each other really well, well before she was even married into it. Yeah, the king didn't marry peasants off the street. No, he did not. <laughs> Catherine's mom, Maud, was a close friend and attendant of Catherine of Aragon, and Catherine Parr was likely named after Queen Catherine, who was also her godmother. So they, again, close family relationships. Catherine's mother was still attending the queen while she was pregnant, so Catherine was already even at court before she was born. Catherine's father died when she was very young, so she was really close to her mother as she grew up. 
So she was born into this family of status and her education began really like any other well-born woman. She really had a passion for learning. And so she was fluent in French, Latin and Italian and began learning Spanish after becoming queen. And I am always so jealous of these (laughs) people in history who know like six languages. It seems really unfair. (laughs) Catherine married her first husband when she was 17. And fun fact, she would eventually have four husbands, which makes her the most married English queen. So there's Mm. your trivia. In 1529, which is the same year that Martin Luther wrote the Small and Large Catechisms and the year before the Augsburg Confession was presented, Catherine married Sir Edward Burrow, spelled B-U-R-G-H, but pronounced Burrow, who was in his late 20s and probably poor health. He was the grandson of the second Baron Burrow, and he would have inherited the title had he lived long enough, but alas, he died in 1533. So... During this time, a connection to the German Reformation in 1530, the Augsburg Confession was presented to Charles V at the Diet of Augsburg. So there's like big stuff happening during this time. So after Sir Burrow died, Catherine likely went to be with the Dowager Lady Strickland, Catherine Neville. Everyone's named Catherine. Catherine Neville, who was the widow of Catherine's cousin, Sir Walter Strickland. And then the summer of 1534, Catherine married John Neville, third Baron Latimer, who was her, her father's second cousin and family to Lady Strickland. So many family marriages. Latimer was twice Catherine's age and also twice widowed. So in this marriage, Catherine also gained two stepchildren, a home of her own in the North, a title, and a husband with a position and influence in the North. So this was actually a really good marriage for her. Latimer was also a supporter of the Catholic Church and opposed the king's annulment and marriage to Anne Boleyn. And that caused some serious issues for their family. So in October of 1536, he was actually dragged away from their house and Anne ended up living alone with her stepchildren until April 1537 in this like fear that they were going to come after her too. And in January of 1537, Catherine and her stepchildren were held hostage at Snape Castle in North Yorkshire and the rebels ransacked the house and then sent word to Latimer that if he didn't return immediately, they were going to kill his family. So that's like a lot of drama. Thankfully, he did return in time and convince the rebels to let his family go. But this experience may have also helped solidify Catherine's affiliation with the Reformed Church of England, quite possibly. Hmm. The king and Thomas Cromwell had threatened to execute Latimer for treason, which you could do to Catholics at this point. But it's likely that Catherine's brother and uncle intervened to save them. So already involved in church drama at that point. But because of all this, they had to spend a lot more time in the South. Their their house was in the North, and they had to spend a lot more time in the South to kind of avoid all the, the crazy stuff going on. So in 1542, they spent time in London while her husband was at Parliament. So Catherine visited her brother and sister at court where she met, this is the meet cute, she met her future fourth husband, Sir Thomas Seymour. She also learned that she loved being at court and knowing all the latest things and the glamorous lifestyle, which was very much not like the country lifestyle she was used to. And you'll see that later when she's queen. She really likes the opulent uh, lifestyle of queen, which also plays into her writing a book called Lamentations of a Sinner. So anyway... By winter of 1542, Latimer's health was seriously declining and Catherine nursed him until his death in 1543. This was obviously a really good relationship, a marriage relationship, though. She was named guardian of his daughter, Margaret, and put in charge of his affairs until Margaret could marry. He also left her the manor and properties plus money to support Margaret. 
So she was pretty well off and really likely mourned her husband sincerely. So at this point, she was trying to avoid having to move back north because she liked being in London area and at court. So (laughs) she used her mother's friendship with the former queen, Catherine of Aragon, to renew her own friendship with Catherine's daughter, Lady Mary. So by February 1543, she had established herself as part of Lady Mary's household, which is where King Henry noticed her. Oh, boy. So so she was at this point already pretty close to Sir Thomas Seymour, the brother of the former Queen Jane Seymour. So there is that family connection. But when the king proposed marriage, she's like, yeah, that's kind of a big deal. I think I'd rather be queen right now. So (laughs) she was no dummy. Yeah. Also, like when you get a proposal for marriage to be a queen, like, I don't know if you really turn that down. So the king sent Thomas Seymour on assignment to Brussels to kind of get him out of the way. (laughs) So (laughs) they were married in 1543 and Catherine became Queen of England and Ireland, the first queen to have that title after Henry took the title of King of Ireland. Catherine and Henry were also cousins in multiple ways. They shared several royal relatives, so it's very complicated. I, there's, if you look up a chart of how your face is right now, if no, you no, not like she's chart. not like first cousins, you guys. We're talking like third no. and fourth cousins. Yeah, there's like the family chart of British royalty at this time is like so convoluted. It's so hard to keep straight because everyone just kind of like they keep they want to keep the royal bloodline going, so. All the, it's all these like distant cousins that keep marrying each other. I mean, it's by the time confusing. you get to fourth, fifth, sixth cousins, there's like hardly any chance of genetic abnormalities. <laughs> so this is just my observation from her story. But Queen Catherine seemed to have a real knack for people and relationships. She had made her stepdaughter, Margaret Neville, her lady in waiting. And she gave her stepson, John's wife, Lucy, a position in her household. So she liked keeping her stepchildren close to her in her new role. She was also partially responsible for reconciling Henry with his daughters from his previous marriages. And she had a really good relationship with Edward, too. So she... She seemed to be the kind of person that liked to at least be somewhat friendly with these people and and keep those relationships in good order. Especially with young Elizabeth, like she sort of took Mm -hmm. Elizabeth under her wing. And I think probably uh, is largely responsible for Elizabeth not having spent her entire formative years sort of really completely ostracized, which turned out to be a very good thing for England. Yes, So in 1544, Catherine anonymously printed by the king's printer, Psalms or prayers taken from Holy Scriptures, which was a translation from the Latin of Bishop John Fisher that had been printed barely a month prior. So she translated that real fast. So this was printed during the time that war plans were being finalized and the book was used heavily as propaganda while Henry was out fighting Scotland and France. So the book contained 17 psalms that were focused heavily on beating your enemies. (laughs) Imagine that. Plus a prayer for the king that was taken from a prayer for the Holy Roman Emperor by Gerard Witzel. Plus a prayer for men entering battle that was translated from Erasmus. Hence the uh, being used for propaganda during war. I was going to say, how could a book of psalms be propaganda? Well, I guess if you curate them appropriately... Yes. yes, you can. Roof texting. Roof texting. 
She paid for deluxe copies of the book to be given out at court. Plus, one of the psalms was set to music by Thomas Tell. I know. I want to know what a deluxe copy looks like from them. Uh, Plus, one of the psalms was set to music by Thomas Tellus. And likely, I know, likely performed at a victory celebration Mm -hmm. ceremony in 1544. The most interesting part about this, though, is that her prayer for the king lives on to this day in the Book of Common Prayer. It was edited and inserted in 1559, probably by Elizabeth, and it's still used by Anglicans today. So that's Mm. really cool. In mid-1544, from like July to September, Henry was on his last campaign to France, which meant that Catherine was left to rule in his place. And she was surrounded by people who approved of her. So she was kind of free to rule how she wanted. And she was really good at it. She handled the finances and the goods for Henry's campaign in France. And she signed five royal proclamations and she kept control over a really tenuous situation in Scotland. So she was actually, besides being like good with people and stuff and obviously being able to translate books and things, she was also just a really good ruler at this time, too. Catherine published her second book, Prayers and Meditations, in 1545. And I could be wrong on if it was this book or a different one, but I'm pretty sure this is the first book in England to be published by a woman under her own name. I don't know if it's this one or another one, but I know that she is the first woman to publish a book under her own name in English. It's which the is the queen. What's she going to do? Right. Really cool. So this one was a reworking of the third book of Thomas Akempis's Imitatio Christi which was on interior consolation. And it's the longest of the four books that make up his entire work. It was originally written as this dialogue between Christ and a Christian. And it basically boils down to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So Catherine reworked it to be a monologue by a single Christian speaker. And it was a bestseller. So it was printed like all over the place. Princess Elizabeth had it translated into Latin, Italian, and French as a New Year's present for Henry in 1545 Mm. with a manuscript that had a hand-embroidered cover. Super lavish and also a very interesting New Year's present. (laughs) Well, I mean, it used to be that more presents were given on New Year's than Christmas. Uh, Which I think we had that in a trivia challenge once upon a time. Probably. The New Year's (laughs) one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Catherine retained a lot of her Catholic beliefs up into this time-ish, but she was becoming more and more sympathetic to the quote-unquote new faith that was coming out of the Reformation people. So she likely had some sort of religious conversion sometime in 1546 and came to believe the teaching of justification by faith, which puts her directly at odds with her husband's belief that works were necessary for salvation, which came out of the Catholic Church. And this would nearly cost her her life. The Queen's Lutheran beliefs were super suspicious to conservative and anti-Protestant officials, Stephen Gardner, who was the Bishop of Winchester, and Lord Chancellor Thomas Risley, which is spelled W-R-I-O-T-H-E-S-L-E-Y. <laughs> These names are hoot. Brilliant. Risley. So... Even though Henry VIII had rejected the authority of the Pope when he created the Church of England, he was the head of the Church of England. A lot of Roman Catholic doctrine was still kind of retained in teaching. It was all kind of a mushy theological time with all of these theological conversations happening across Europe and the split of Church of England and the Catholic Church. There was just a lot happening. Thomas Cromwell was a proponent of the Reformation and was appointed Henry's chief minister, replacing Cardinal Wolsey. Although Cromwell was later beheaded for his bad marriage advice and Cardinal Wolsey was replaced to begin with because he was the one that was unable to secure the annulment of Henry and Catherine of Aragon's marriage. 
So Thomas Cranmer also gave a little Protestant flair to the Church of England's doctrine as Archbishop of Canterbury. So there was just a lot of like intermingling of doctrine at this point. And so these religious things were really confusing and convoluted. In 1539, the Act of Six Articles returned the church to Catholic teaching minus the Pope. So they returned to teaching transubstantiation, clerical marriage was condemned. All of those like very Catholic teachings returned to the Church of England. And this was the year that the Catholic Counter-Reformation really began in earnest. So Thomas Cranmer who was married, it was kind of not super secret, had to actually get his wife and kids out of England for their safety. Whoops. Uh, (laughs) Most most Uh, importantly, (laughs) being a pastor's wife, sometimes Mm life-threatening. Heresy became a felony again. So this is why people were being beheaded for believing in doctrine that didn't align with whatever the monarchy said the doctrine was. (laughs) So... Henry VIII wasn't tolerating anybody holding to Protestant views. Protestants were punished, a.k.a. burned at the stake, most likely, for violation of the Six Articles. But Catholics were also being punished for following the Pope instead of the King. So it was a super hot mess of all kinds of stuff happening. Cromwell and Cranmer had tried to align the Church of England with the Lutheran Reformation. But after the Six Articles were published, Luther kind of went, well, that's not going to happen. So there was (laughs) some hope maybe that it could be aligned, but mm, no church fellowship. Nope. Mm. So back to Stephen Gardner and Lord Chancellor Risley. They were very suspicious of Queen Catherine, especially because she would have these really deep theological discussions with Henry where she would present her Lutheran beliefs to him, which was very dangerous for her to do. Part of me thinks that she was like trying to nudge him over to the Lutheran side. It should be very funny. Mm. Gardner and Risley had convinced Henry that Catherine was a heretic. So, <laughs> so he approved an arrest warrant for her, which would have likely meant death had they arrested her. Someone slipped it to Catherine, though, that they were after her. And she went that night to Henry and begged him to call it off and saying that he was obviously the greater theological mind. She was only presenting these ideas so that she could learn from him, kind of throwing herself at his mercy. And it worked. The next morning, Henry and Catherine were in the gardens when Risley and the guards came to arrest her. And Henry was like, "Um, no, what are you even doing? Go away. And so that was that. He kind of saved her from likely death as a heretic. So Henry died on January 28th, 1547, which was the year after Martin Luther died. Henry was age 55 and he was buried alongside Jane Seymour. Before he died, he had made sure that Catherine would be taken care of with a healthy allowance. And he ordered that Catherine would be queen dowager and should be given the respect of a queen. And she retired from court after Edward VI's coronation on January 31st, 1547. So now that the king was dead, she was finally free to marry her original true love, Thomas Seymour. He returned to court and proposed marriage, to which Catherine, of course, agreed because she wanted to marry him originally anyway. But it was only four months after the king's death and the regency (laughs) council wouldn't agree to it. (laughs) So they married in secret. And this creates even more drama when people found out several months later, King Edward and Lady Mary were super not happy. Thomas was censured and reprimanded by the council and he wrote to Lady Mary for a reprieve and she was like, why do you think I would even do this for you? And she got super angry 
and told Lady Elizabeth that they weren't going to talk to him anymore. So it created this whole rift in the family, which was actually Mm -hmm. really sad. Catherine also had some drama with her brother-in-law, Edward Seymour, because his wife, Anne Seymour, (laughs) all these connections, who was also her former lady-in-waiting, thought that she would be the one to wear the royal jewels, not the Queen Dowager. So that caused another rift between these families, because Anne wanted the jewels instead of Catherine. Not the jewels. (laughs) Then, on November 5th, 1547, Catherine published her third and obviously Lutheran book, Lamentation of a Sinner, published at Fleet Street in London. And I realized while I was reading this little book that she published this when she was my age. (laughs) Like, that's just wild to think about. She likely wrote it in 1546 because it talks about the king before his death. And I want to read you the little part where she talks about the king I'm reading out of Don Matsat's translation of the book, and you can buy this on Amazon. It's four bucks. It's totally worth the price. It's a quick read. She's talking about Moses delivering them from Pharaoh. Quote, by Moses, I mean King Henry VIII, my most sovereign, favorable lord and husband, who through the excellent grace of God is suitable to be an expressed picture of Moses' conquest over Pharaoh. And by Pharaoh, I mean the Bishop of Rome, who has... (laughs) (laughs) And is a greater persecutor of all true Christians than ever was Pharaoh of the children of Israel. For he is a persecutor of the gospel and grace, a promoter of all superstition and counterfeit holiness, bringing many souls to hell with his alchemy and counterfeit money, deceiving the poor souls under the pretense of holiness. But so much the greater shall be his damnation because he deceives and robs under Christ's mantle. The Lord keep and defend all men from his juggling and craftiness, but specifically the poor, simple, unlearned souls. And this lesson I wish all men had of him, that when they begin to dislike his doing, only then they begin to like God and certainly not before. So she had no love lost for uh, Rome either, Mm -mm. by the way. (laughs) So she maybe very wisely didn't publish this until after (laughs) the king had died. And the Protestant rule of Edward had begun because she most likely would have been burned as a heretic had Mm. she printed this before 1547. Catholics were largely persecuted at this time. That was a wise move on her part. So this book is all about justification by faith, which was heresy to Catholics. So I have a couple more. I'm going to read you some more from her book. There's some really good quotes. I was like screaming and reading these aloud to my husband while I was reading this because I so many mic drops going on in here. So this is page 36. No, I will call upon Christ, the light of the world, the fountain of life, the relief of all the weary and the peacemaker between God and man, and the only health and comfort of all true repentant sinners. He can, by his almighty power, save me and deliver me out of this miserable condition. He desires by his mercy to save even the entire sin of the world. I have no hope nor confidence in any creature, neither in heaven nor earth, but in Christ, my total and only Savior. And this is another one about justification on page 39. Quote, St. Paul says we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the deeds of the law. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. St. Paul means not a dead human historical faith gotten by human effort, but a supernatural living faith which works by love, as he himself plainly states. This esteem of faith does not disparage good works, for out of this faith springs all good works. Yet we may not impute to the worthiness of faith or good works our justification before God, but ascribe and give the worthiness of it totally to the merits of Christ's passion and declare and attribute the knowledge and perception of those merits to faith alone. 
The very true and only property of faith is to take, apprehend, and hold fast the promises of God's mercy, which makes us righteous and causes me to continually hope for the same mercy, and in love to do the many good works ascribed in Scripture, that I may be thankful for the same. So she was totally on board with justification by faith, not by works. And there's one more on page 42. She says very plainly, yet it is true that by faith alone, I am sure to be justified. Mm -hmm. Justification by faith. Amen. This theology had probably been rolling around in her head for several years. In 1544 and 1545, she was putting together an English translation of Erasmus's paraphrases upon the New Testament, which was finally printed in 1548. And every parish was ordered to get a copy of it. So there's a lot of people throughout those years that knew of her great theological mind and her role Hmm. in the English Reformation. So Catherine became pregnant at age 35, surprisingly because she had been married three times before and had not been pregnant in any of them. And during this time, her husband, Thomas Seymour, had some weird flirtatious relationship with Lady Elizabeth, who he may or may not have schemed to marry before Catherine. It was a really odd relationship. Elizabeth was sent away in 1548 to Sir Anthony Denny's house and never saw Catherine again. So Catherine moved to Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire in June 1548, with Lady Jane Grey and gave birth to her daughter, Mary Seymour, on August 30th, 1548. Very unfortunately and very sadly, Catherine died on September 5th, 1548 from quote-unquote childbed fever, which was still a thing all the way to what, pioneer days in America? This comes up in the Dr. Bessie story Hmm. that all the way up until that point, Women were still dying from a lack of hygiene around childbirth. So unfortunately, well, that is and what they she still died do from. today. Just it is usually prevented. Yes, Catherine's funeral was September seventh, fifteen forty-eight, and was the first Protestant funeral in England. And she was buried at Sudley Castle. You mean the first Protestant just, funeral in English or England? England, England. The first Protestant funeral in England. Oh my goodness. Yes. Wow. Yes. Just a year later, Lord Seymour was beheaded for treason on March 20th, 1539. (laughs) And their child, Mary, went to live with the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk. We don't really know what happened to Mary, unfortunately. It's highly likely she died as a child. There's really no other historical evidence of her, which I think is kind of sad. She Mm -hmm. lost both of her parents when she was just a baby. Hmm. Some interesting things happened to Catherine's grave. A hundred years later, during the English Civil War, the monument at her grave was likely destroyed during a siege and sack in January 1643 of Sudley Castle. And then the castle changed hands several times during this war. And then another siege happened in 1649 and her grave was lost. It was discovered again over a hundred years later in 1768. And then the grave was opened several more times and the body was disturbed and her clothes were taken and her hair was cut by like people who wanted to do that. Yeah, it's weird. Weird stuff. Long story short, her coffin was moved in 1861, so another 100 years later, to the new chapel there with a new beautiful marble figure, which is how it stands today. For those of you who cannot see our faces on the video chat as we talk, (laughs) it looked like every one of us had just taken a big old drink of lemon juice we talked about the disturbing of the gra- just some very very sour frowny faces because yes. why would you even do that Ooh, really weird stuff mm-hmm. 
So at any rate, Catherine is remembered as being someone with this really great sense of dignity and loyalty and devotion and a very firm religious commitment. And she is very well loved among historians and people who love studying British royalty. She's probably the favorite queen of King Henry VIII for a lot of people. I know she's mine, even though before I researched this podcast, I did not care about King Henry VIII's (laughs) wives, but uh, now she's my favorite. So there's that. After her death, this religious nonsense really kept going on in England, as I'm sure a lot of you are aware. Edward died at age 15, so the Roman Catholic Mary reigned and earned her name as Bloody Mary for burning 280 heretics. She reigned for five years, and then her half-sister Elizabeth changed everything back to Protestantism and religious toleration, returning to the Reformation via John Calvin instead of Luther. And she reigned for 44 years during the Elizabethan era. So... Religious stuff just like flip-flopped back and forth. I I can't even imagine living during that time and trying to keep it straight and like trying to figure out Mm. what you were supposed to believe just so you weren't burned as a heretic for something you may or may not actually believe in. It's just, it's really wild. Interestingly enough, Erasmus and John Calvin were a lot more influential in the English Reformation than Martin Luther ever was. And we can still kind of see that influence today in the Church of England. So this little book, The Lamentation of a Sinner, very interesting. It's in three parts. The first part is about her confession of sins and how terrible of a sinner she is, which is a very interesting thing because she wrote this when she was queen and she loved this opulent lifestyle. And yet she's really debasing herself and explaining that she... like regrets all of this love for things of the world. And that's it kind of like doesn't really compute that this reigning queen would have all of these feelings of not actually wanting to love all of this stuff that is really at her fingertips. Mm. It's it's really it's really very interesting. It's almost like she's a saint and a sinner at the same time and recognizes it. I know. The second part is all about Christ and this Christology and just a lot of the mercy of Christ. So in talking about this Christology from page 51, Christ likewise has overcome death in a more glorious manner, if it be possible, because he has not taken it away, but leaving universally all subject to the same fate. He has given so much virtue and spirit that whereas before we passed through death with great fear, now we are bold through the spirit for the sure hope of the resurrection that we receive it with joy. It is now no more bitter, but sweet, no more feared, but desired. It is not death, but life. And then the third part is all about godly living and divisions in the church. She has some very harsh words about the Catholic church and the practices that she says are like driving people away from the true gospel, which is what the Reformation was all about too, (laughs) and living as true Christians in this world. And she absolutely could have written this like, yesterday. It's amazing how relevant her writing still is today. Quote, I suppose there was never a greater need for good doctrine to be set forth in the world than in this age. For the carnal children of Adam are so wise in their generation that if it were possible, they would deceive the children of light. The world loves his own and therefore their facts and works are highly esteemed by the world. But the children of God are hated because they are not of this world. For their habitation is in heaven and they despise the world as the most vile slave. The fleshly children of Adam are so political, subtle, crafty, and wise in their kind that the elect should be deluded if it were possible. But for an outer appearance, they are clothed with Christ's garment, with a fair show of all godliness and holiness in their words. But they have so shorn, trimmed, and twisted Christ's garment, and so disguised themselves that the children of light, beholding them with a spiritual eye, account and take them for mere men who have sold their master's garment and have stolen a piece of every man's garment." 
So it's just a lot about oh, living faithfully in this world and sticking to true hmm. gospel and the true doctrine of the church. So from page 61, I mean, this is like from today, quote, it is much to be lamented. The schisms, diversities, contentions and disputations that have been and are in the world about the Christian religion. There is no agreement or unity among the learned men. Truly, the devil has been the sower of sedition and shall be the maintainer of it even till God's will is fulfilled. There is no war so cruel and evil as this for the war with swords kills only the bodies. But this war destroys many souls. And one more, this just like was a total mic drop. For page 81, quote, I would to God we would all, when occasion arises, confess our faults to the world, laying aside all respect to our own position. But alas, self-love so reigns among us that, as I have said before, we cannot spy our own faults. And if perhaps we should discover our own guilt, we either favorably interpret it as not being sin, or else we are ashamed to confess it. Yes, and we are badly offended and grieved to hear another tell us of our faults in a lovingly and godly manner, making no distinction between a loving warning and malicious accusation. And so that is the story of Catherine, who really seemed to understand the true mercy and grace of God and who was really a brilliant theologian at the time of the Reformation. Sounds like she did a really good job keeping her mm-hmm. head, you know she what I mean? Did. Like. Like, yeah, she just kept, she kept yeah, I head, think you know? one of the only not smart moves she did was probably marrying Thomas Seymour. Yeah, probably. Who turned out to be a bit of a creep. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she, other than that, pretty wise woman, wise for her years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And managed mm-hmm. to uh, keep her head. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm telling you. Well, I feel like, Sarah, I really didn't know much of any of it. It is still very convoluted, <laughs> but I do appreciate learning a little bit about a Lutheran connection with the royals of, of England and the string theory yeah, of the Tudor fascinating <laughs> how it all ties together. Bits and- I love the way when you told the story, you sort of showed the interconnections and parallel timelines because we, we tend to think of things happening with Luther and the Reformation in Germany as being sort of, I don't know, off to themselves, but no, they were not in a vacuum. They yeah, were right. interconnected with everything happening throughout Europe. It was yeah. like a, a virus almost, these ideas that spread mm-hmm. throughout everywhere and had to be dealt with and were in different ways. But, you know, mm-hmm. Luther and the, the other Protestants, Swingley and Calvin and Erasmus, who pops up, you know, mm-hmm. it's all happening in the same, at the same time and in the same region. And they all mm-hmm. know about each other. Um, yeah. I love that you mentioned that Luther weighed in on whether the king should get a divorce. <laughs> Right. Who made you Pope, Luther? Right. (laughs) But yeah, he had a theological opinion and so he shared it. And I Mm -hmm. I think he was probably right. Yeah. Good story. And I learned some stuff that I didn't know before, too. And of course, that Lamentation of a Sinner, I'd heard of it, but I'd never heard any snippets from it. And it is, of course, really good. Yes. Awesome. Ladies, we'd love to hear your own thoughts about Catherine Parr. We'd love to hear them in our Facebook group. Join us there, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge on Facebook. Or you can follow us on Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. If you'd like to get the Lutheran Ladies Lounge in your inbox, you can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter. Find out how to do that in the show notes for this episode. Or you can just send us an email 
lutheranladies at kfuo.org and we'll get you signed up for that newsletter. You can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash lounge or on your favorite podcasting app or on the KFUO radio app. You are listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. Happy Reformation! I'm Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Catherine Par 3. <laughs> And I'm Rachel. (laughs) KFUO Radio and the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast are underwritten in part by Wicking Vicar. Visit them online at wickingvicar.com. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a review for us, too. If you love the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast, consider financially supporting our producer, KFUO Radio, so we can keep doing what we do. Find out how at kfuo.org slash give. I'm a Catherine Par 3. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. Did you? You went right. I did. In. Yep. I was listening to Sarah. I was cheering the Reformation, I and I completely missed yep. my cue. Yeah, it happens to all of us. You, Rachel, <laughs> and I'm Rachel. <laughs> <laughs>